Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. Today, we have a great guest on, very interesting conversation that we're going to have with Aisha Pittman. She is the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at the National Association of ACOs. Aisha, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. So you have been very busy lately. Uh, there's been a couple of things uh, going on in the regulatory space. We had the uh, completion of the 2023 uh, Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, uh, and there's a number of different things in there from an ACO perspective that I hope you'll be able to give us some background on, as well the omnibus bill that was just passed in the previous Congress had a number of different uh, elements that uh, are beneficial to the ACOs. So uh, those will be the core points of conversation. But uh, before we get there, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the National Association of ACOs. Yeah, great. So the National Association of ACOs represents organizations that function as accountable care uh, organizations. We have, I think, over 400 uh, ACOs that participate in MSSP, a large uh, sum that participate in the um, ACO REACH program. But then uh, in addition to that, our members are doing ACO arrangements with other payers in Medicaid, in Medicare Advantage, with commercial payers as well. So it's not just focused on the traditional Medicare ACO programs, but is much broader than that. And then for myself, I've been working in value-based care for um, quite some time. I'm new to uh, the National Association of ACOs. I've been here about six months, but prior to that, I worked for Premier, where I was in their government relations team and focused on all things um, payment policy, which included um, population health payment. And in that role, I got to partner with groups like the National Association of ACOs and others that are really focused on um, transitioning from fee-for-service to value-based care. It's uh, it's interesting, uh, just a real quick aside, ACOs have a great position, right? I want to um, increase the, it's all about value. But at that same time, you know, decreasing the cost of care while increasing the quality of care, which is kind of an oxymoron in and of itself. But but the but ACOs have been it seems have been struggling in getting a um, stronghold and momentum moving forward. What are your thoughts on that? As you know, it's the, the whole idea for moving off of fee for service to a value based care model. Uh, any particular call outs on challenges as to why uh, that is? Yeah, I think, you know, we are 10 years, uh, almost 11, 12 now into the, the the ACO movement, and we've learned a lot. Ultimately, moving to an ACO is a voluntary approach. It takes a lot of upfront investment and really rethinking how you deliver care. And not everyone is in a place to make those upfront investments. So that's some of the challenge. I think also, um, we've learned a lot recently about the overall ACO structure in that um, it is very driven off of primary care. So how beneficiaries align to the ACOs based on primary care services. And what that has led to is 
We see a little bit less participation by specialists within the ACO for a variety of reasons. I think that's one challenge that the Innovation Center is taking on now, which will really help grow and expand the, the population as well. So it's, you know, the upfront investment, just change takes time. But then also we are now discovering some things about programmatic structure, whether that's the type of providers that can come into it or how the benchmarks are set and, and how that leads to success or challenges. We're, you know, we're 10 years in and, and I think we have a good sense of some of the challenges and are really thinking through how to resolve them to make, um, to ensure the long-term success of the program and really grow the program. Interesting. So uh, let's uh, shift to the actual agenda that we established. I apologize for that uh, diversion, but it was an interesting point and I appreciate your response and insights. So let's start first with the fee schedule. You know, uh, back in, I believe it was November, uh, the uh, Medicare released the 2023 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule and had some key provisions in there from an ACO perspective. Can you give us some highlights as to what what was in that fee schedule? Yep. And I think some of what's in the fee schedule points just to the challenges I was talking about. So one of the things that we saw come into place is the Advanced Investment Payment Program. This program provides new ACOs and ACOs that have providers that typically have not participated. So like getting towards some more of your rural providers, smaller um, physician groups, gives them funding up front to uh, invest in the ACO and, you know, do all of the needed technology investments, the staffing investments that it takes to get an ACO up and running. And it's um, ultimately they pay that back by reducing their shared savings um, as they achieve savings later in the program. But it's, you know, as I was talking about, one of the challenges, not all providers have the ability to make those upfront investments. And this is right. in recognition of it. And it builds off of a program we saw before that was implemented um, by CMS. And this just gives it as a um, more permanent option within in the program for new folks coming in. And so that's a huge thing that'll just really help with um, bringing providers that haven't typically participated and recognizing the upfront costs. Well, let's get the audience a bit uh, because, you know, Medicare has made this, um, I won't say an edict, but they've kind of set this goal that by 20, uh, 2030, everybody should be involved in a value-based program. So this is something that everybody needs to start to pay attention to, right? So when you say investment, tell us more about what that investment entails. Yep. So if you are starting uh, a new ACO, we know that First, there's technology to both that that helps with population health. So things like um, your data systems. So being able to look at your data comprehensively across the continuum of care. Think about staffing a little bit differently. Um, ACOs often employ a lot of care managers. Um, also, from sort of a staffing perspective, uh, you're incented to work with providers across the continuum to think about how lowering care. So you need much more, many more folks around who are, who are out um, working with the other providers uh, that are in your region or market to think about that comprehensive continuum of, of care. You know, this is the virtual shift. ACOs deploy a lot of, of virtual um, care. And so it's, technology to administer virtual care. It's the staff to to do it as well. And so anything around 
changing and innovating care has often both a staff and technology component associated with it. And it's so it's those initial costs. Yeah, interesting insight. So uh, we'll get into the uh, the virtual side in a minute, but the idea that most of the virtual care uh, elements, uh, let's talk about telehealth, remote patient monitoring, therapeutic monitoring, uh, chronic care management, are more fee-for-service-like elements. But I believe that the adoption of such programs does also facilitate a patient moving from awareness to wellness, as I say, and and can do that at a lower cost. So it does achieve the uh, increase the value of care, increases the whole patient engagement side of the equation, and reduces cost in the in the long run. Uh, but that's a, to your point, that's an investment in and of itself because you got to be patient on uh, relative to uh, implementing the program and then start to receive the uh, the results uh, uh, over time. Some of it is more immediate. Some of it is long, more longer term. The point there being is from an ACO perspective and the way ACOs are paid out versus a fee-for-service, can you correlate the two in how an ACO adopt uh, remote patient monitoring as an example but not yet in a fee-for-service-like manner, how they get compensated? So I think that one of the the uh, longer-term challenges that we are trying to solve with the, the ACO program is that it's still ultimately fee-for-service payment. And if we look at a model like ACO REACH, it's starting to shift some of it away from fee-for-service payment to uh, the ability to to look at other payment models because that model requires at least um, at least primary care capitation and then you can expand your capitated amount beyond that. So ACOs are telehealth, remote patient monitoring, chronic care management. It is deployed in a way that is similar to fee for service. The benefit of an ACO is that you have waivers that get you out of those constraints of fee for service. So what we saw um, with the um, telehealth flexibilities that were uh, provided as part of the the PAG, those uh, waivers have been in place, not not exactly the same, but similar waivers have been in place for ACOs since uh, uh, early in the program. And I think what we really learned is that the waivers that ACOs had weren't flexible enough. And so as uh, once we look to the expiration of these flexibilities, and I know the omnibus extended how long they go after the the PHE, but we'll want to think about not only for fee-for-service, what flexibilities are there, but how, how can ACOs have even more flexibility since they're ultimately responsible for total cost of care? So it's still fee-for-service aligned now. They've always had some ability to, to do things a little bit differently, but we really want to see um, the reins taken off of, of ACOs since they're responsible for the care continuum. And there is an incentive not to lead to overuse of services, which I think is sometimes, er- which is often the concern about um, opening up some virtual care elements so much more within fee-for-service. Interesting. As you know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate. When you talk about ACOs and, and needing to develop uh, transformational programs to uh, ultimately be uh, responsible for those quality of care and the overall delivery of care, you know, it's, uh, I, I find it, you know, the health system in and of itself is separate from the patient's perspective. Right. 
Uh, and the and the point there is that how many patients really know what an ACO is and whether or not their doctor is actually involved in an ACO, and how many uh, and how many know that that provider's payments are at risk. If I don't, if I was a, uh, a person with diabetes, I could be fired, if you will, the old adage of, uh, of from as being a patient because I'm not really compliant with the care plan of my that my pro- provider's prescribing. So there just seems to be a, an alignment issue relative to what fee schedules are and what uh, the omnibills might have versus what the patient knows about uh, what they're involved in, right? Other than, hey, I got to get better. I got a, I got a chronic condition and I, I got to do something. Yeah. Hopefully you're they'll t- do something. You're touching on one of the issues that I think is a, um, a top priority topic for us um, this year and in the years to come. So, we know there's a lot of good data and studies out there that ACOs are beneficial, that they're saving costs compared to fee-for-service, that it's getting patients higher quality care, that patient satisfaction is good. But ultimately, you're correct, often patients don't know that um, they're in an ACO. And I think that is sometimes a challenge uh, to to continuing the movement because there is this lack of patient awareness. And so... We're really thinking about how do we better engage um, patients or think about patients, patient engagement differently. I think there's a lot of patient engagement when it comes to the population health management core functions, but that piece of understanding that their providers are are on the hook for how how they are cared for. I think that that element is missing and it's something that we're looking at. I think that it also gets to a, um, you know, how how patients come into an ACO, it's very passive. It's based on historical claims traditionally. Um, and now we're seeing this option of more voluntary enrollment, both in ACO reach and in MSSP. And there's sort of two different approaches for it there. But I think that is giving ACOs tools to um, think about how they engage patients and giving patients the ability to say they want to opt into this type of care. Similar to, I mean, it's a very different enrollment. uh, The voluntary alignment is very different than like a Medicare Advantage enrollment, but it's sort of trying to create some parallels there in that um, the patient would like could see the value in this and would want to opt in or knows that their provider is in an ACO and they see the additional benefits that they get from it and want to opt in. So we're just starting to test that. And I think we're just starting to understand that. And that's something we'd want to see expand in the program to really help grow the program. Yeah, we we often talk about three words, uh, access, engagement, and outcomes. Uh, if you provide the access and you educate the, the patient as to what the, they're uh, being asked to participate in, they'll engage. And if you engage them, they will uh, respond in uh, multiples. And then that ultimately leads for outcomes. And when I talk about outcomes, it's it's the financial outcomes that the provider is looking for, right? They're not a charity, for sure. And But at the same time, it's the clinical outcomes, right? So if you can get people on that on that page, uh, that would that that's awesome. I mean, we do, as you know, uh, remote patient monitoring, chronic care management, and you know, we 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 tend to add, we don't we never talk to the patient, frankly, about what the criteria for reimbursements are. The 16-day right. measure <laughs> is not a known uh, not a known element because we we ultimately talk to them about taking their vitals twice a day, right? Uh, so if you're if you miss a day, you in our view, our program, you'd miss two two vitals 
as opposed to you know in a in a fee for service arrangement you you you're still safe right so the understanding the program that they're in and what their commitment is we just see um, if we just change the tune a little bit uh patients patients will engage and i don't care what anybody says uh Older, older people do use smartphones and they do use technology. They're not as fluid as uh, maybe my uh, four-year-old niece uh, who, who uses technology all the time. But, uh, but, the, but nonetheless, they, they, they do use uh, technology and they do engage uh, if, you, if you ask them to and you tell them why, right? I think it's that story of understanding the why. So, you know, ACOs yeah. can uh, offer much more benefits and access to things that you don't have in fever for service, even things like, you know, we're testing this uh, concept of reducing, being able to reduce cost sharing for certain services. That type of thing is a patient benefit that is very unknown. So I think part of in thinking about patient engagement and helping patients understand ACOs is understanding what benefits that they get, get from it, not necessarily the underlying payment model, but what they would opt into this because it gives them these extra things or, you know, they know that they are um, going to get a designated care manager and a, a line that they can call 24-7 and be able to reach someone and talk to someone if if that's necessary. That's really about how we're thinking about the, the patient piece in order to really help patients understand what what's the benefit here why 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 is this different from something traditional why would i want to be a part of it exactly it has nothing to do with while i can appreciate you need technology but if you start the discussion about technology it all ultimately becomes complex and people disengage but if you talk about value and benefits people understand that they if they pay less they uh you know that's a benefit to them so uh I hate to say it's all about the money, but and I don't I'm not meaning to indicate that that's the only reason why patients engage, but benefits over feature function uh, wins uh, every day, in in my view. Mm -hmm. So anything more uh, in the physician fee schedule that we should discuss before we shift over to um, to the omnibus bill? I mean, I think there were just a uh, I think that AIP was a is. The, one of the prominent things to bring in new folks to the program, there's just a recognition of like other changes that need to be made. So things like giving ACOs more time in, in upside only, that's beneficial because, you know, it we know it takes a long time to from start to get to the point where you're ready to manage risk. So um, that creates a more stability in the program. Um, making the highest risk track more optional. There was discussion about recognition that the benchmarks can become favorable, unfavorable if you remain in the program for a long time. And how do you solve that that piece where like, you know, at some point you cannot you can only cut a certain amount off of what your historical spending was until you get to a point where it's like this is just what you need to the amount of money yeah. you need to deliver care effectively. So recognition of that and um, starting, it was just an RFI, but it starts the discussion of how do we move forward. So I think all of those things really point to expansion of the program and ensuring the long-term success. So we were really encouraged by many of those provisions. Interesting. Very good. Good stuff. Uh, so uh, let's shift the, the discussion to the omnibus bill. To be honest with you, I haven't read a much about the omnibus bill and what was in it from an ACO perspective. So if you can educate the audience, that, that would be great. 
Yeah, so I, I, you know, all of the payment provisions, so things like the PAYGO and the, and the increased physician payment um, for for two years, ultimately impact providers in ACOs because still built on a fee-for-service system. But I think the biggest thing for ACOs was um, an extension of incentive payments for those who are taking on this. So this was put in place uh, back in uh, part of MACRA uh, back in 2015, and it gives uh, a bonus payment on all Part B payments for any APM, such as ACOs, any downside risk uh, Medicare APM, if you meet a certain amount of having patients or or payment volume through the APM. And so that was had, was set in MACRA as a way to incent providers to not only um, adopt APMs, but then to go a step farther and, and take on downside risk. And so they were set to expire um, at the end of this year, although there's a two-year delay in payment. So end of 2022 was the last year to qualify for payment that would have been received in 2024. And so we have another year. So 2023 is now the last year to qualify, which would uh, pay a bonus in 2025. So we're encouraged by that. While the amount of the incentive payment was lowered, it was historically 5%. It went down to 3.5% for this one-year extension. Um, and we only had a one-year, have a one-year extension but it just sends a good signal that Congress sees the importance of continuing um, value-based care. And I think it sets us up for a, a nice discussion in the next Congress of how do we want to move forward with continuing this, this path to value overall. Yeah, and that's the key is that, you know, what what's going to be the benchmark over the next year relative to whether or not more providers come into the program versus um, it just not being enough incentive and and having the 2030 goal at risk, right? Is it going to be more? So I was just curious as to whether or not you see any particular benchmarks that might be telling to the uh, to the market that you know more needs to be done in an ACO world relative to getting physicians off of a fee for schedule and more into a a risk oriented program. I mean, I think ultimately. If we think about the physician payment challenges, and while there was a, um, it was not what the physician community was asking for, we're sort of back in this place of um, having to go to Congress constantly to think about what is the best physician payment approach. And I think the more you can get folks away from fee-for-service and into to value models, we have to stop having that continual conversation. So I know um, we're sort of thinking about it in one way of there's still a lot to be solved with physician payment going forward. As you think about that, how do you continue to pair incentives to move to value to um, have that overall uh, shift occur? Yeah. So that's yeah, one way I, in which we're hoping. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I often advocate that, you know, to get the experience in a different delivery of care model, you know, the virtual care scenarios play out, right? Telehealth, virtual, meeting the patient in their home remote patient monitoring, chronic care management. You can do all that without taking on any quote-unquote risk, but you get the experience as to those different programs, those different revenue models, and you can ultimately realize, hey, 
I can actually do this now, as opposed to jumping in. I, I know there's a, a period of time where you have to adjust to taking on that risk in a, uh, once you join the program. But I think that's another approach in that, geez, if, it, it just makes a logical sense that a remote patient monitoring program for those that have one or more chronic conditions makes sense, right? As opposed to a, my audience often hears the average Medicare patient, five chronic conditions, sees nine different doctors, only spends 15 hours in front of their doctor in a given year. The biggest question relative to how do we get the value is how do what do I what do I do? What does the patient do in the other 8,745 hours in a given year? Right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. really where care needs to be. And if you can close that gap through engagement through these virtual care programs, that ultimately delivers the value. Uh, and so the point there being is, I think that you know there, uh, these virtual programs are stepping stones into uh, an ACO uh, and just makes them that much more prepared for class, if you will, uh, relative to how we get there. Yeah, Your and thoughts? I also I, I I agree, and I think that um, it it's a stepping stone, but it's also you know at the end of the day we we recognize there's costs associated with these things and. Yeah. Our fee-for-service system is not set up in a way that is ever going to really adequately uh, account for virtual care. You really have to think about where you're shifting costs, and that's what an ACO does. They look at what what comprehensively happens for a patient across the continuum and thinks about where they can invest. And I know one of the places that they're investing a lot is is in virtual care because they are able to reduce services elsewhere. And so... Just in a um, fee for service, you're never really going to get to that that comprehensive thought. And I think this is why the upside only is an opportunity when you can have those abilities to shift the costs and and think about those necessary investments without being penalized. It then gives you the experience to to do have even more flexibility and be at risk. Aisha, we're going to need to leave it there. I really appreciate your insights. This is a great conversation. Very informative. So uh, Aisha Pittman, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at the National Association of ACOs. Aisha, thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Uh, we'll, we'll certainly have you on uh, again soon um, if you're if you're willing. Always, always willing. <laughs> awesome. All right. Have a great day. I want to thank the show sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern, throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.